0: Welcome to Frontline Gastroenterology and the podcast for the Twitter debate entitled Acute on Chronic Liver Failure, All You Need to Know. My name is Dr. Manmeet Mathru and I'm a gastroenterology registrar in London and trainee editor for Frontline Gastroenterology. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Galton Mehta, a consultant hepatologist with a specialist interest in acute on chronic liver failure and alcohol-related liver disease. Welcome Dr. Mehta and thank you for hosting a brilliant debate. So I'll start off with some questions. What is the significance of acute and chronic liver disease and how does this differ from decompensation?
1: That's a great question. So I think it's fair to say that acute and chronic liver failure is is redefining how we think about cirrhosis. It's a term that if you go back a decade or so, you may not have heard. It's really only come to the fore in the last few years. But what it defines is a phenomenon that I think we've all recognised, just not pinned down, which is your cirrhotic patient that has uh, an insult, it may or may not be recognised what that insult is, but it could be something like sepsis or an alcohol binge or surgery, something like that, and then within a period of a few weeks has a very rapid decompensation of first liver failure, but often extrahepatic organ failure, multi organ failure and we we can we can very clearly distinguish this from simple acute decompensation. And probably the, if listeners want to go and find a study, the key study is the CANONIC study, which was published in Gastroenterology a couple of years ago. And they, that's the largest prospective study of cirrhosis. They followed, I think, about 1,000 patients with cirrhosis over several European countries. And they they found very clearly that a decompensation has a, a good prognosis, maybe a 2% 30-day mortality. But if you have acute on chronic liver failure, which is defined by hepatic organ failure, um, then, then you progress to death uh, at 28 days, uh, anywhere between 30 and 60%, depending on the number of organ failures. And when we think about what's happening to that patient, there's marked systemic inflammation. So it's not actually the liver failure that predicts mortality; it's the extrahepatic organ failure, and that's driven by an insult to, to the liver, often sepsis, an alcohol binge, that sort of thing, unknown in 30-40%. So um, this is redefining how we think about patients with cirrhosis, and it means we can stratify them in terms of uh, prognosis to a degree, to escalation to other therapies, be that ICU or specialist therapies as they come online. And with with this big database, we've now got good scoring systems to figure out who has got acute-on-chronic liver failure versus a straightforward decompensation and um and these are uh these are scores that you can download onto your iphone or or a smartphone and you can i think we should encourage their use because they help us think about cirrhosis in a slightly different way
0: that's really important to have a good sort of database to back up um sort of when we try to get patients into ITU i think it's useful to have that knowledge yeah absolutely. um in, interesting so what's your apo- approach to fluid resuscitation in acute on chronic liver disease
1: yeah another really good question. So I think I think the sort of subtext of this question is about albumin or crystalloids and things isn't it? Yes. Um so again if you think back about albumin it's it's had a uh, maybe a bit of a checkered history with, with liver disease. There was the very pivotal studies from Arroyo in Barcelona which showed that they improved mortality in hepatorenal syndrome. So a really important study. And, but then of course there were big studies in other ICU groups like the SAFE study which had a bit of a, a, a warning attached to albumin's use. I think the reality is that diagnosing HRS in the very classical way is very difficult in the acute situation because you've got a cirrhotic patient who has had several insults. They may be drug-related, like diuretics, maybe an episode of sepsis or whatever. And actually, diagnosing HRS is very difficult because you need to demonstrate no response to volume resuscitation, absence of parenchymal kidney disease, absence of sepsis, all that sort of stuff. So, pragmatically, we first of all, thinking about kidney injury in ATF a bit differently. Most of these patients have got actual kidney injury from a secondary cause, like like sepsis or... And if you look at the kidneys of these patients, there's often tubular damage. So it's not just the HRS. It's difficult to, to, to get all this information from the end of the bed, of course. There are biomarkers coming online in the next few years, urinary biomarkers. But actually, probably a pragmatic thing to do is to probably think about albumin early as part of your early resuscitation for at least 40 hours or so. And that might be 100 mils of 20% albumin twice a day, something like that, for the first 48 hours. That's what I do Adjusting that based on an assessment of volume status, of course, along with that, you're managing the acute kidney injury in the standard way, which is removing nephrotoxins, making sure there's no parenchymal kidney disease, looking for sepsis, that sort of thing. But it's, it's a very interesting area because albumin probably modifies prognosis in, in ACLS, and there are trials online to try and demonstrate that. Certainly all the preclinical data is very, very encouraging. So, so it's difficult, but I would, I would suggest that albumin's is a useful tool in the first couple of days, and if there's a response, it's worth continuing. The only caveat I would have is volume status is crucial, because an early signal from one of the recent trials suggested that one, in a few patients from one big French study, there were some deaths from pulmonary edema. Yeah. Now, it's very weak. It's not enough to be a strong signal, really, but just something to bear in, in the back of your mind. But but in general, I think albumin is something that will become part of the um, the standard armamentarium for liver disease as we go forward.
0: Brilliant. And what are your key messages for venous thrombo and clotting dysfunction in acute decompensation?
1: Uh, yeah, this is a really nice discussion that the um, during the Twitter debate. So the uh, again, if you, if you think back, um, uh, cirrhosis was obviously thought of as being a pro bleeding condition because of the prolonged clotting times, but that's probably not true there's probably a, a balanced loss of clotting factors or maybe even um, a pro-thrombotic state in cirrhosis. So people worry about, about the prolonged clotting times, but the reality is that your patient's probably either, either a baseline or pro-thrombotic, and that's worth bearing in mind. So the first thing to say is I think there's, there's some evidence that giving low-molecular heparins in, in cirrhosis actually improves prognosis. So there was a A nice study which showed that three months of um, low-molecular heparin decreased decompensating events going forward. That was by Eric Villa. But, um, I mean, one study is not enough for for routine practice. But I think when it comes to thromboprophylaxis, I I would certainly encourage it on that basis. I think probably the other thing to say is there was a big audit of blood product use across the UK. Um, A couple of years ago, which was recently published, and one of the findings there was that we're, we're, we're probably overusing blood products for the correction of coagulopathy even, even without there being a, uh, an indication of an invasive procedure. So people are, people are obviously worried about these prolonged clotting times. And I think that if there's active hemorrhage, that sort of thing, of course you need to worry. If you're undertaking a significant invasive procedure, again, appropriate precautions need to be taken. But I don't think we need to consider a cirrhotic as being someone with a bleeding tendency unless there's absolute evidence to demonstrate that.
0: And venous thromboprophylaxis is you know, a good thing for cirrhotic patients because obviously they are at risk.
1: It absolutely is. And and I would I would encourage every hospitalised cirrhotic to have venous thromboprophylaxis unless there's a very obvious contraindication like active bleeding.
0: Sure. Brilliant. Can you give us an update on new drug therapies that may be coming out for cirrhosis?
1: This is very exciting. So trying to use the phrase the liver decade and the Twitter debate, I think it, it's not um, just hyperbole. I think it probably will be true. There are drugs that modify the prognosis in in liver disease coming online very, very soon. The EASL meeting, quite recently, there was a very nice study that looked at um, caspase inhibitors. So these are drugs that inhibit apoptosis or cell death in the liver. What we think happens is you've got your cirrhotic patient who's very happily out there in the community managing, managing themselves quite well. They have a hit to the liver, as I said, that could be sepsis or alcohol, and that hit causes... A subsequent progressive cell death, which doesn't stop, it carries on. And that loss of par- liver parenchyma is what leads to the liver and then extra-hepatic kidney, brain failure, etc. So if we can stop that progressive cell death, then we'll improve prognosis in ACLF. And there's a drug called Emricasan, which is a caspase inhibitor, which looked very good in a phase 2 study, improving lots of liver parameters. There's a nice study uh, published in Gastroenterology recently, which showed that the addition of simvastatin to mm. patients with... Um, Standard therapy for portal hypertension actually improved mortality after variceal bleed. Not quite clear exactly what the mechanism is. It probably works in several ways. But simvastatin reduces portal pressure. Probably also helps patients when they when they have an episode of sepsis on liver disease. And and that's just two examples of of other drugs that are coming through. Another interesting one which will be will be in in clinical practice very soon is an FXR agonist. FXR is a bile acid signaling drug, but um, an agonist of this. Uh, this receptor has, has shown benefits in, in NASH, in cholestatic liver diseases, so probably quite wide in, indications, and it's, that will also be a very exciting area of bile acid signaling. So going, going back to the days when we only had propanolol, uh, moving on to having an array of drugs to treat a number of the liver problems is, is really exciting, so I think it genuinely will be the liver decades.
0: Fantastic. And so finally, what are your key messages from the Alcohol, Liver, Disease, and report that we should be aware of?
1: Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I think that's a very important document. It was published a couple of years ago now, but it, I think it showed how heterogeneous liver care is across the UK, and it, it shows that we're really doing these patients a disservice. So for those who've not seen it, I think it's worth a brief look, if only to demonstrate that um, patients who who were admitted to some centres, do a lot worse than patients who are admitted to more specialist centres. And that's probably simply a reflection of um, uh, the liver, liver training, perhaps, across the UK that people get, but also something to do with maybe the approach of, um, the cultural approach of physicians to alcohol-related liver disease. I know some physicians have had problems getting patients to ICU, for example, and attitudes vary across the UK. And this is something that we just need to, to change. As new new agents for their um, for the management of these patients come online, as um, new scoring systems to delineate prognosis come online, we should be better equipped to speak to our intensivist colleagues with regard to our individual, individual patients. And I think, in the, in the one hand, knowing that we're doing these patients a disservice is very clearly demonstrated by the NC pod, but also having a, a good handle on prognosis and knowing that there are bridging therapies is also very important for our patients. And I, hopefully those bits of information will arm people when they next speak to their intensivists about um, a sick alcohol or even non-alcohol-related cirrhotic patients. Um I think the message is that we do need to change our attitudes to these people because um, we're not doing them the best service we possibly could.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Dr. Meta, for a very interesting debate and useful discussion. As well as the podcast, a summary of the debate can be found on www.storify.com forward slash front underscore BMJ forward slash frontline training. Next month's Twitter debate will be co-hosted with the BSG in the run-up to the BSG 2016 annual meeting. Professor Pradeep Bandari will lead a discussion on endoscopy matters on the 8th of June 2016. Follow at FrontCastro underscore BMJ hashtag Thank Thanks very much.